Hi, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Saturday Evening Post. The Toronto Star Newspaper of Ontario. The Catholic News Agency. Women's Health Magazine. The Associated Press. And Forbes Magazine. And I'm going to start today's program off with a story from medicalnewstoday.com. It's a story about eye health care titled Eye Surgery. Why Outcomes Are Less Successful for Black, Hispanic Patients After Retinal Detachment Procedure. It was written by Annie Lennon and published March 24, 2023. Retinal detachment is an eye condition in which the retina, a light-sensitive tissue layer at the back of the eye, is pulled away from its normal position. The condition is often caused by aging or injury. The most common type of retinal detachment is... Rechmatogenous retinal detachment, RRD, which happens when a small tear or break occurs in the retina. Surgery is the most common treatment for this condition. However, studies show that non-white patients have lower success rates following surgery and worse visual outcomes than white patients. Experts say that understanding more about why non-white patients have less successful surgical outcomes could improve treatments. Recently, researchers compared the vision outcomes of black, Hispanic, and white patients who underwent surgery for retinal detachment. They found that black and Hispanic patients had worse vision results than white people. The study was published in the Canadian Journal of Ophthalmology. For the study, the researchers compared medical records from 124 black and or Hispanic participants and 71 white participants diagnosed with RRD. All underwent surgical treatment at Boston Medical Center. Black and Hispanic participants were an average age of 50 years old, whereas white participants were an average age of 57 years old. Whereas 65% of Black and Hispanic participants had multiple retinal breaks, the same was true for only 49% of white participants. Black and Hispanic patients were also more likely to have proliferative vitreo retinopathy, PVR, the most common cause of failure of RRD surgery. With PVR, the formation of scar tissue interrupts normal healing after the surgery, causing redetachment of the retina. The patient's visual outcomes were measured at six months and at final follow-up. Although both groups presented similar vision before surgery, the researchers noted that Black and Hispanic participants had worse post-operative vision than white patients at six months and at two years. Racial Differences in Eye Surgery Results In the study, the authors noted that a higher presence of PVR among Black and or Hispanic participants prior to surgery likely contributed to worse vision outcomes. When asked about other factors that might influence worse vision results among Black and or Hispanic patients, Karen Lincoln, Ph.D., a professor of environmental and occupational health at the University of California, Irvine, who was not involved in the study, told Medical News Today, One factor that might explain racial differences in vision results is related to access to vision care for minority populations across the lifespan. Underdiagnosis and undertreatment in the form of fewer ocular diagnoses, less access to and utilization of vision care, and lower rates of follow-up care contribute to observed racial and ethnic differences in treatment outcomes. The ability to afford glasses is linked to socioeconomic status, and unfortunately, many families have to make difficult choices about how to use limited resources. 
Black children and adolescents have the highest per capita rate of blindness and visual impairment of all racial groups of the same age, Lincoln added. And we cannot underestimate the excessive burden that many black adults experience due to diabetes and diabetic retinopathy compared to other racial and ethnic groups. So it's important to consider social determinants of health, the lifespan, and the cumulative efforts of underdiagnosis and undertreatment to understand health disparities. Dr. Noy Ashkenazi, an assistant professor in the Department of Ophthalmology at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, who was also not involved in the study, added that genetic factors linked to inflammation and scar tissue formation may also play a role in the different outcomes between patients of different ethnicities. Limitations of the study. Ashkenazi explained, the study was retrospective and excluded patients who did not self-report their race and or ethnicity, which may have introduced sampling bias. Sampling size may have limited statistical significant racial differences in outcomes, such as final surgery success rate, Ashkenazi told MNT. Lincoln added that another limitation is that the black and Hispanic participants had different characteristics than the white patients. They were younger and more likely to have more than one retinal break or PVR. She noted that these differences might indicate a longer history of vision problems than among non-white participants. Because of the dearth of studies focused on African Americans specifically, there might even be delayed presentation or less common indicators of vision problems such as sickle cell retinopathy that are more common in African Americans but were not considered in this study, she said. We must also be cognizant of the important impact of health literacy levels in particular, the ability to recognize symptoms of eye problems which can result in delayed care and advanced presentation. Implications of the Eye Surgery Study As a retina surgeon, it is helpful to have data showing that the demographic information of a patient may impact their potential visual gain after a successful retinal reattachment surgery, said Ashkenazi. As a community, we should truly strive to elucidate these risk factors further so that we can improve outcomes in our minority patients. MNT also spoke with Dr. Jeff Russo, an ophthalmologist and eye surgeon in New York who was not involved in the study. He noted that the findings run contrary to what he has seen in practice in which most patients with RRD are Caucasian men. Della Russo indicated that socioeconomic factors might be important for understanding outcome disparities. If the study is looking at cross-sections throughout the USA, of course, lower income and less education and poor access to eye care will have worse outcomes. That was the article, Eye Surgery, Why Outcomes Are Less Successful for Black, Hispanic Patients After Retinal Detachment Procedure. It was written by Annie Lennon, published March 24, 2023, at the medicalnewstoday.com website. The next story I have for you is about religion. It's from the Catholic News Agency and its catholicnewsagency.com website. The title is Servant of God, Mother Mary Lang, and the Rich History of Black Catholic Religious Orders. It was written by Jim Graves and published February 28, 2023. Two centuries ago, Mary Elizabeth Lang, 1789-1882, immigrated to the United States from Cuba and joined a friend to offer free education to Baltimore's black children. With the support of Baltimore Archbishop James Whitfield, she founded a school for girls of color and then the Oblate Sisters of Providence, a religious community of women of African descent. 
The cause for Mother Mary Lang's canonization was introduced by Baltimore Cardinal William Keeler in 1991, and as a servant of God, she has begun the first step on the road to canonization. As many observe Black History Month in February, it is a fitting time for Catholics to consider the accomplishments of Black Catholics in America and the struggles that Catholics such as Lang have had in claiming their place in the church. A February 24th segment on EWTN News in Depth tells the complex, inspiring story of the impact of African Americans in the church. Sister Brenda Cherry entered religious life in 1958 and selected Lang's Oblates, she said, when the doors of other religious communities were closed to her. She recalled, I live right across the street from a group of nuns who were white nuns, and it was unacceptable at the time for me to join them, so I joined the Oblates. The Oblate Sisters came into existence more than three decades before the Civil War and its resulting abolition of slavery within the United States. Although Maryland supported the Union, it was a slave state when Lang arrived. EWTN News correspondent Mark Irons noted that she established St. Francis Academy in Baltimore because she believed African-American children had the right to an education. Shannon D. Williams of the University of Dayton said that the founding of the Oblate Sisters rejected the mistaken belief that a woman born into slavery lacked the virtue necessary to enter religious life. Williams, the author of the book Subversive Habits, described how generations of African-American Catholic women and girls fought against discrimination and exclusion to answer God's call for their lives. Raised Catholic and today a history professor, Williams said that many people are unaware of the existence of black nuns in our church. The number of black Catholic sisters in the United States remains small, just about 1% of the total population, about the same number of black Catholic priests in the United States. Nigerian-born Josephite Father Xavier Edet, capital E-D-E-T, who today serves at St. Francis Xavier Church in Baltimore, noted that when he was growing up, the dearth of black Catholic priests led him to conclude, priesthood is for white. But he longed for that vocation. I would love to be a priest. He eventually discovered African men could be ordained to the priesthood and joined the Josephite Fathers, a community founded in 1871 to serve the nation's black Catholics and is pastor of one of the nation's oldest predominantly black Catholic parishes in the U.S. It's a loving community. We welcome everybody, he explained. Williams wondered how past racial discrimination may have discouraged many lay black Catholics from pursuing religious vocations. She asked, where would we be now if we had all those vocations? But it certainly is a painful reminder for someone who is still a practicing Catholic that for some people, you know, race came before faith, when our Catholic tradition teaches us that faith comes before everything else. Other black Catholics with religious vocations were determined to join communities, discrimination or not. Sister Constance Fenwick of the Oblate Sisters remarked, they had to accept us because we weren't going to take any less. Oblate Sister Mary Pauline Tomaklo, capital T-A-M-A-K-L-O-E, who was born in Ghana, takes her inspiration from Foundress Lang, a woman of determination. When Tomaklo struggles, she says she follows Lang's advice to hasten the Blessed Sacrament to lay her challenges before Christ, and that is where she finds her strength, as the segment described. Edet added that he hopes the example of communities such as the Josephites and Oblate Sisters will inspire young black Catholics to consider religious life. He said it is important to have that connection to say, if he can do it, 
I can do it, or to look and say, he looks like me, he resembles me. It's not about us anymore. It is about what legacy we're going to leave for the younger ones. And that legacy is a blessed one. That was the article, Servant of God, Mary Lang, and the Rich History of Black Catholic Religious Orders. It was published at catholicnewsagency.com, written by Jim Graves, and published February 28, 2023 at 10 a.m. The next story on today's program is from Women's Health Magazine and its womenshealthmag.com website. The title is Rosacea in Black and Asian Skin, What It Looks Like and How to Treat the Condition. It was written by Ata Awaji Victor and published April 5, 2023. Over the past few years, many of the myths about darker or black skin have slowly been debunked by dermatologists and estheticians. The creation of the Black Skin Directory, which works to connect people of color with expert skin care professionals in 2018, plus the formation of the Black Aesthetic Advisory Board, BAAB, in July, which investigates the experiences of black practitioners in the industry, as well as those of patients and consumers, have further paved the way for a new awareness. This includes the way in which standard medical training has often failed to address the difference in the way common conditions appear on skin of color and, as such, to get effective treatment delivered to those who need it. One common skin issue that has long been overlooked in darker-skinned women is rosacea. Although less prevalent in those with black skin or those from an Asian or minority ethnic background, it is still far from rare. The effects of the condition, meanwhile, can be extremely detrimental for the person in question's confidence thanks to the aesthetic implications as well as their overall quality of life. Rosacea can cause a painful stinging or burning sensation as well as patches of extreme dryness. The upshot? Correct, swift diagnosis and treatment really matters. A review in Two Rosacea, published in the Journal of American Dermatology, reported that worldwide, the reported prevalence of rosacea in people with skin of color has varied, with estimates as high as 40 million cases and rates up to 10%. However, because rosacea is often misdiagnosed in darker skin, the exact figures for black women or those from an Asian or minority ethnic group in the United Kingdom living with the condition remains unknown. Rosacea on people of white or lighter skin tones often presents as rosy cheeks, a flush or with overall uneven red skin. These indicators can be masked by higher pigmentation in skin of color, making it harder to diagnose for some general practitioners and skin experts. According to Dr. Kimi Fabusiwa, capital K-E-M-I, capital F-A-B-U-S-I-W-A, esthetician and director of Joyful Skin Clinic in Croydon, rosacea shows up in black and brown skin in a few ways. Darker-skinned individuals might notice pimples or postules in hypersensitive skin, she explains. Hypersensitivity also means that people impacted may notice that their skin is easily irritated by external aggressors such as UV radiation, or the application of cosmetic products. Just like on lighter skin tones, Dr. Fabusiwa says that another indication of rosacea is persistent warmth rising from the cheeks. The root reason as to why someone might develop rosacea is unknown, she adds. Although flare-ups can be triggered by lifestyle factors including alcohol, heat, stress, and spicy food. 
Patients with rosacea typically come into the clinic first experiencing pimples and postules on the cheek, says Dr. Fabusiwa. She explains that her clients have been known to mistake these for acne and come to her after trying over-the-counter ingredients to manage symptoms of that condition, which haven't worked. A recent rosacea client for Dr. Fabusiwa, for example, came to the clinic complaining of irritation that started when she used some new makeup. This had, over time, given way to pimples that she believed to be acne. In turn, these left behind areas of hyperpigmentation and uneven skin. After consulting her GP and then Dr. Fabusiwa, she was diagnosed with rosacea. Treatment-wise, Dr. Fabusiwa believes that trying to prevent flare-ups is the best way to go. This involves identifying your triggers, noting down if you have visible rosacea after a period of extreme stress or lying in the sun, for example, and then trying to avoid these through relaxation techniques and using SPF. For a longer-term solution, she also recommends focusing on strengthening the skin's moisture barrier. Why? Hypersensitivity caused by rosacea means that your skin barrier isn't as effective at protecting itself from the outside world, she says. So building a protective one by moisturizing every night and avoiding irritating soaps or harsh exfoliators can work wonders for mild cases of rosacea. A gentle, fragrance, and soap-free cleanser, preferably with an emollient like glycerin, which can preserve moisture in the skin, can significantly reduce any added inflammation. Swapping out exfoliators like glycolic acid for gentler methods of cleansing the skin can also reduce the appearance of rosacea in dark skin. Dr. Fabusiva says that this is especially important because you should already be looking to reduce unnecessary irritation to the surface of your skin as dark skin is much more prone to post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation and even minor irritation can cause lasting problems. Another crucial step for daily management of rosacea on darker skin is SPF. Dr. Fabusiwa advises that people with rosacea use SPF every day, even when you're indoors. She explains that this is particularly important as UV radiation can trigger flares that can also worsen hyperpigmentation. For more severe cases that are not able to be managed at home, she advises that you should consult with your GP early in order to help prevent some of the long-term consequences of rosacea, such as thickened skin. They might prescribe you certain gels or creams to help to lessen the appearance of rosacea, as well as any pain you're experiencing. In some such cases, your GP might offer you a course of antibiotics, which could last from 6 to 16 weeks. These will likely be pretty weak as the aim of the game is to use them for an anti-inflammatory effect as opposed to next harmful microbes. In some instances, you might be prescribed a retinoid, a form of vitamin A and a stronger prescription alternative to retinol, which can reduce the appearance of red bumps on your skin. If your issues keep persisting, then you might be referred to a dermatologist for specialist help. Want to find one yourself? The Black Skin Directory is helpful for locating experts who specialize in diagnosing and treating skin of color. That was the article, Rosacea in Black and Asian Skin, What It Looks Like and How to Treat the Condition. It was written by Ata Owaji Victor, capital A-T-A dash capital O-W-A-J-I, and published April 5th, 2023 at womenshealthmag.com. Next, I have an article about personal finance. It's from Forbes magazine and it's Forbes.com website. The title is Five Methods for Thriving at Building Black Generational Wealth. It was written by the Forbes magazine staff 
and published February 15, 2023 at 1.32 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Why should Black Americans focus on building generational wealth? For starters, McKinsey Global Institute reports that today's median annual wage for Black workers is approximately 30% or $10,000 lower than that of white workers. Fortunately, there are numerous ways the Black community can build their fortunes. Spoiler alert, simply saving money is not enough. Here are ways to make sure your hard-earned dollars are working for you. 1. Know the willpower of financial planning. Racial wage gaps aren't the only hurdles to building Black generational wealth. Black people are 50% less likely to have a will plan compared to other groups. And nearly 70% of Black Americans don't have an estate plan or a will, according to Black Enterprise. Building generational wealth means planning and ensuring the financial security of your loved ones once you pass on. An estate plan, which can address how your assets can be distributed if something happens to you, is an excellent way to solidify financial stability for yourself and others. But estate planning involves much more than money. It concerns your assets, like your belongings and even your digital assets. If you don't feel ready for estate planning, you can still create a financial plan for the next 5 to 10 years. Financial planning is a great opportunity for Black individuals to expose themselves to financial wellness and develop a strategy that will work for their goals and aspirations. If the thought of planning your financial future seems daunting, consider investing in financial services. 2. Learn to mind your own Black business. Rates of entrepreneurship among the Black community have surged 38% since the pandemic. Even the Great Resignation has highlighted how Black workers have changed their perception of the workforce. Whether it's to increase revenue or to find more fulfilling work, starting a business or a side hustle is yet another chance for Black communities to invest in their talent. While this type of investment may not be the same as investing in the stock market, it's still a wise way to build generational wealth. Owning a business teaches owners the importance of balancing books, managing projects and or people, and the true value of investing in oneself. Not only can Black communities transfer soft skills to younger generations, but they can also transfer their businesses, firms, or LLCs. 3. Invest in the stock market in real estate. Anyone can invest in the stock market. Despite there being few barriers to getting started in investing, a CNBC survey reported that half of Black U.S. adults don't currently own individual stocks, mutual funds, bonds, exchange-traded funds, cryptocurrency, or real estate invested in the stock market. A recent survey by Ariel Black Schwab, however, found that many Black Americans invested for the first time in 2020. To further understand the importance of investing, consider the historical impact that discrimination, debt, and disparity have had on Black communities. Saving money as a liquid asset or cash that can be used in the next three to five years will only get us so far. In fact, even if we make it that far, our white counterparts have been investing for so long that they have the advantage of capitalizing on their own generational wealth. Meanwhile, black families lag behind with debt accrued through medical expenses, student loan debt, or other expenses. Another reason why a typical savings account isn't enough is because of interest. A savings account can only grow so much in the next 10 years, whereas stocks can as much as triple within a decade when invested properly. Therefore, investing in your retirement, like a 401k or Roth IRA, can mean the difference between a great retirement or one filled with struggle. Lastly, 
Remember that while investing involves risk, you can make the most out of your investment if you invest wisely. This leads us to a very important part of building generational wealth for black people, financial literacy. Four, become fluent in your finances. Financial literacy is the key to helping close the racial wage gap in the United States. As a growing number of black Americans begin investing in the stock market and starting businesses, it's essential that they understand the gravity of their decisions and the way those choices can pay off in the future. According to the 2021 TIAA Institute, GFLEC Personal Finance Index, Black Americans answered an average of 38% of the study's financial literacy questions correctly, whereas white Americans answered an average of 55% of questions correctly. The growing need for financial education in Black communities is obvious, not in just statistics alone, but in the way we frame thoughts and conversations around money. Financial literacy doesn't have to be overwhelming. There are many online resources tailored to those building generational wealth. No matter if you're a student about to graduate, a professional getting her first job, or someone interested in putting more money towards your retirement, financial literacy is a muscle that you'll continue to flex throughout your entire life. Finally, it's no secret that a college degree on its own isn't enough to close the racial wage gap between Black and white Americans. Student loans can finance four years of higher education, but once that time has ended, students are expected to make payments to lenders. Some students receive a grace period of up to a year, but if that year isn't spent negotiating to get a better paying job or properly budgeting one's money, that grace period ending could bring on financial stress. Black student borrowers struggle with student loan debt, with 29% making monthly payments of $350 or more. And considering ways that Black degree holders and students can build generational wealth, there are many options. Graduates can refinance their student loans or create repayment plans that focus on prioritizing interest rates over the overall amount. There is plenty of hope for building Black wealth, and it lies within the actions that we take every day. When you choose to increase your financial literacy, or when you decide to invest in yourself or stock, you're giving yourself the power to determine your future. Of course, there are social, economic, and historical factors that continue to affect our lives, but we too can steer the course. By continuing to educate yourself and those who may very well inherit your assets one day, you're doing your part in eliminating the wealth gap. That was the article, Five Methods for Thriving at Building Black Generational Wealth. It was written by the Forbes magazine staff, and appeared at the Forbes.com website on February 15th, 2023. Next on today's African American Hour, I have two columns from the Saturday Evening Post magazine and its SaturdayEveningPost.com website. It's from the Considering History column written by Ben Railton. This column explores the connections between America's past and present. The first is about basketball, and the one that follows is about politics. The first column is titled, The Harlem Globetrotters and the Social Significance of Sports. It was published March 15, 2023. The subtitle is, The Harlem Globetrotters have always been far more than just a comic exhibition team, just as basketball and sports have always meant much more than simply entertainment or escapism. There aren't many things that can unite most Americans here in March 2023, 
but the return of the annual ritual of filling out March Madness brackets definitely qualifies. For the next few weeks, we'll all have strong opinions about whether this is the year Gonzaga finally gets over the hump in the NCAA men's tournament, whether South Carolina can continue its run of historic greatness to a repeat championship in the NCAA women's tournament, whether Oral Roberts will become another unlikely Cinderella story, and so many other storylines that remind us of the complex but undeniably compelling power of sports. That power can feel like it resides mostly in sports' ability to entertain us, to provide a communal escape from the more difficult realities of our lives. But I would argue precisely the opposite, not only that sports are influenced and affected by all those realities, but also that sports at their best can play a role in social change and progress. Offering a case study in the social significance of sports is a long-standing and world-famous basketball team that seems designed solely to entertain, the Harlem Globetrotters. The creation and the naming of the Globetrotters both reflect historical realities of race and prejudice and exemplify the team's goal of transcending them. In the 1920s, decades before the founding of the National Basketball Association, most organized basketball in America took place at the collegiate level and the vast majority of those college teams were racially segregated. Many of the best black basketball players thus had to look elsewhere for opportunities to play, and one such opportunity was offered by Chicago's Savoy Ballroom. Not long after its 1927 opening, the ballroom began fielding an exhibition basketball team known as the Savoy Big Five in order to draw crowds to its dances. Local entrepreneur and longtime basketball player and coach Abe Saperstein learned of the group and signed on as a manager and promoter, and in 1929, he and the team began to tour the region. As the team broadened its horizons beyond the Savoy Ballroom in Chicago, it needed a name that would reflect those aspirations. In the 1920s, no American community better embodied the vibrancy of African-American culture of the Jazz Age and the Roaring Twenties and of an increasingly cosmopolitan and globally connected nation than did the New York neighborhood of Harlem and its unfolding Harlem Renaissance. Despite the team's Illinois roots and initial Midwestern tours, Saperstein and the Savoy players recognized their own connection to those cultural, national, and cosmopolitan trends and chose a new team name that echoed those trends, the New York Harlem Globetrotters. After an initial decade of success at the regional level, during which the team began to incorporate more humor and showmanship thanks to stars like Inman Jackson, a pair of 1940s victories truly established the Globetrotters as a force on the national and global basketball landscape. Beginning in 1939, Chicago played host to an annual invitational competition known as the World Professional Basketball Tournament, which was often dominated by teams from the recently created and racially segregated National Basketball League, but which was open to other professional teams as well. In the 1942nd World Professional Basketball Tournament, the Globetrotters secured the crown, capping the tournament's only undefeated run by besting the all-white Chicago Bruins 31-29 in the championship game. The tournament victory was certainly significant, but it was an even more high-profile triumph a few years later that really launched the Globetrotters into the national basketball conversation. One of the best and most prominent basketball teams in the late 1940s was the Minneapolis Lakers, an all-white team that dominated league play in the era, first in the NBL and then in the newly created and still segregated Basketball Association of America, BAA. 
Lakers general manager Max Winter was friendly with Abe Saperstein, and the two decided to stage an exhibition game between the teams. The Globetrotters arrived at that February 1948 contest on a 102-game winning streak, but they had never faced competition like the Lakers, which featured two future basketball Hall of Famers, including superstar George Mikan. As historian John Christgau traces in his book about this 1948 game, the Globetrotters also dealt with segregated conditions far beyond the basketball court. As the night before the game, they slept in tiny rooms in Ma Pearsall's Southside boarding house, while the Lakers stayed in the luxury Morrison Hotel. The game was a tight and back-and-forth affair, with Mike and Globetrotter star Reese Goose Tatum largely canceling each other out. But in the end, the Globetrotters triumphed on a buzzer beater by Irma Robinson. The Globetrotters would more handily win a rematch between the two teams the following year. While both Saperstein and Winter publicly denied that the game had anything to do with race, the victory certainly meant a great deal to both black basketball players and the broader African-American community. John Chaney, the future Hall of Fame basketball coach at Temple University, was a teenager in Jacksonville, Florida at the time, and on the game's 60th anniversary, reflected that the victory just revitalized so many of us from the fact that it showed what we can be, but we needed a chance. The Globetrotters' success also directly contributed to the desegregation of professional basketball in America and around the globe. The BAA changed its name to the National Basketball Association, NBA, in 1949, and as that league expanded in 1950, three of its teams drafted the first three black players, all drawn from the Globetrotters. Chuck Cooper went to the Boston Celtics, Nat Sweetwater Clifton to the New York Knicks, and Hank Tizani to the Tri-Cities Blackhawks. Later in that decade, one of the era's most talented and prominent basketball players, Wilt Chamberlain, joined the Globetrotters after his hugely successful college career at Kansas and before becoming one of the NBA's all-time great players. During Chamberlain's 1958-59 stint with the Globetrotters, he and the team embarked on a sold-out tour of the Soviet Union, reflecting the team's truly international, if controversial, influence by this time. The Harlem Globetrotters have always been far more than just a comic exhibition team, just as basketball and sports have always meant much more than simply entertainment or escapism. The social significance of this team and sport alike embody the best of what American sports can mean and do and deserve a prominent place in any American history tournament bracket. That was the column, The Harlem Globetrotters and the Social Significance of Sports. It was published March 15, 2023 written by Ben Railton, and it appeared at the SaturdayEveningPost.com website as part of its Considering History column. I'm now going to move to another column written by Ben Railton, entitled Racist Imagery and the Critical Patriotism of Black Legislators. This was published at the SaturdayEveningPost.com website on April 12, 2023. The column subtitle is Negative Portrayals of Black Legislators Go Back 150 Years to the Beginning of Reconstruction, but their actual stories could not be more distinct, complex, and inspiring. One of the most striking stories over the last week was the expulsion of a pair of African-American Democratic legislators from the Tennessee House of Representatives by Republican elected officials. These two young men, Representative Justin Jones and Representative Justin Pearson, 
along with their colleague, Representative Gloria Johnson, had supported and helped lead the gun control protest undertaken on the House floor by numerous young Tennesseans, demonstrations in response to both the horrific Nashville school shooting and the legislature's unwillingness to act in the face of such tragedies. After extended, often demeaning public questioning of Jones and Pearson, the House's Republican majority voted to expel the two of them, but not Johnson, a distinction that Johnson herself, as well as many others, attributed to blatant racism. The vote to expel these two democratically elected legislators was an unusual and extreme step and has already been challenged. In the case of Jones, it has been reversed. But it does fit within a long-standing tradition of attacking black legislators, one that helped shape memories of the post-Civil War Reconstruction era for more than a century. Historians from W.E.B. Du Bois in the 1930s to current figures like David Blight have documented racist images of black legislators as corrupt, ignorant, and profoundly unsuited for office. These portrayals began to appear almost immediately at the start of Reconstruction. While these images were first created by overt white supremacist domestic terrorist organizations like the nation Ku Klux Klan, they soon became far more widespread and widely accepted, thanks in large part to educational textbooks that Dubois points out in his chapter, The Propaganda of History. To highlight just one striking example from William Long's primary school textbook, America, A History of Our Country, 1923, legislatures are often at the mercy of Negroes, childishly ignorant, who sold their votes openly and whose loyalty was gained by allowing them to eat, drink, and clothe themselves at the state expense. While educational texts disseminated these racist images of black legislatures to school children, prominent pop culture works likewise did so for an even broader American audience. One of the clearest examples is an extended sequence from D.W. Griffith's blockbuster silent film, The Birth of a Nation, 1915. The title card that introduces this sequence not only frames it as the riot in the master's hall, the Negro Party in control, but also claims to present an historical facsimile of the State House of Representatives of South Carolina as it was in 1870. The three-minute scene that follows portrays the state's newly elected black legislators not only eating, drinking, and cavorting on the House floor, but also quite literally rioting as a violent mob seeking to enact such measures as, per another title card, a bill providing for the intermarriage of blacks and whites. This Margaret Mitchell would write in her blockbuster novel Gone with the Wind of 1936 was Reconstruction in All Its Implications. The Negroes are on top, her heroine Scarlett O'Hara thinks, and conduct themselves as creatures of small intelligence might naturally be expected to do. These are just a snapshot of the propagandistic, mythic, racist images of black legislators that came to dominate American education, popular culture, and collective memory for much of the century after Reconstruction. The actual stories could not be more distinct, complex, inspiring, and critically patriotic in contrast to those myths. Here are three brief examples from the more than 1,500 African-American men who held office during Reconstruction. Benjamin Turner, born into slavery in 1825 in North Carolina, sold down river to Alabama with his mother when he was only five and freed by the Emancipation Proclamation, Turner became a self-made businessman and farmer in Selma, Alabama, while the Civil War was still raging. In 1865, he had enough local clout to found one of the area's first freedmen schools. Two years later, he attended the State Republican Convention, 
launching his political career with an appointment as the county's tax collector. In 1870, he ran successfully for the U.S. House of Representatives. Although he only served one term, it was a productive two years, including authoring private pension bills for Civil War veterans and opposing a cotton tax that he saw as disproportionately affecting African Americans. After his 1872 defeat, he mostly returned to farming, although he did attend the 1880 Republican National Convention in Chicago, one more reflection of his political and communal role and prominence. Hiram Revels, born in 1827 to free African Americans in Fayetteville, North Carolina, educated for the ministry in Northern seminaries, an itinerant minister for the African Methodist Episcopal Church throughout the 1850s, and the chaplain for one of the first African-American regiments in the Civil War, Revel's story differs from Turner's in just about every way. Yet he too opened one of the earliest freedmen's schools, this one in St. Louis, where he had been a pastor before the war, and he too became one of the first African-Americans in Congress when he was appointed to the Senate by the Mississippi State Legislature in January 1870. Like Turner, Revel served only one term, or in his case, only part of one, as he declined a number of appointments after his Senate term ended in 1871. Yet in that brief time, Revels managed both to fight for the education and rights of freed people and to advocate for universal amnesty for former Confederate soldiers. In his post-Senate life, he continued along both paths, serving as president of Alcorn A&M College, now Alcorn State University, and writing a famous 1875 letter to President Grant denouncing carpetbaggers, a duality that illustrates the breadth of perspectives found among these Reconstruction legislators. Robert Smalls. One particular event in Robert Smalls' amazing life has become well known in recent years. In May 1862, the South Carolina maritime pilot commandeered a Confederate ship and sailed it through a Confederate blockade into the Union lines where it became a U.S. warship and he became one of the most passionate advocates for African-American Civil War service. But Smalls continued his own service during Reconstruction, founding the South Carolina Republican Party, winning election to the South Carolina House of Representatives in 1868, and then winning election to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1874, the start of his five terms in national office. Among his numerous political and social accomplishments, he authored a bill that created in South Carolina the nation's first free and compulsory public education system, just one example of the enduring legacy of this exemplary black legislator. Justin Jones and Justin Pearson can speak for themselves in our own moment and have done so with amazing power before, during, and after their expulsion from the Tennessee House. But they are also part of a long-standing and inspiring legacy of black legislators in America, one that starts ironically in the same era in which the racist images of black legislators originated. That was the column, Racist Imagery and the Critical Patriotism of Black Legislators. It was published April 12, 2023, written by Ben Railton, and it appeared at the SaturdayEveningPost.com website. The next story on today's program is from the Associated Press and was found at the AP.com website. The title is, U.S. charges four Americans, three Russians in election discord case. It was written by Kurt Anderson and published April 18, 2023. 
Four Americans affiliated with the Black Empowerment and Political Organization have been charged along with three Russians with conspiring to covertly sow discord in U.S. society, spread Russian propaganda, and interfere illegally in U.S. elections, according to an indictment unsealed Tuesday, April 18th. The U.S. citizens and two Russians were added to an existing case in Tampa, Florida, federal court involving Alexander Ionov, described by prosecutors as the founder of a Moscow-based organization funded by the Russian government to carry out a clandestine influence campaign in the U.S. The four Americans are all part of the African People's Socialist Party and Uhuru Movement, which has locations in St. Petersburg, Florida and St. Louis, Missouri. Among those charged is Omali Yeshitela capital O-M-A-L-I, capital Y-E-S-H-I-T-E-L-A, chairman of the U.S.-based organization, which was raided by the FBI last summer when Ionov was originally charged. Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service allegedly weaponized our First Amendment rights, freedoms Russia denies to its own citizens to divide Americans and interfere in elections in the United States, said Assistant Attorney General Matthew Olson of the Justice Department's National Security Division. The department will not hesitate to expose and prosecute those who sow discord and corrupt U.S. elections in service of hostile foreign interests, regardless of whether the culprits are U.S. citizens or foreign individuals abroad, Olson said in a news release. Yeshatella and three other U.S. citizens, Penny Hess, Jesse Neville, and Augustus Romaine Jr. are charged with conspiracy to defraud the U.S., Hess, Yeshatella, and Neville are also charged with impersonating agents of a foreign government. Ionov and the two other Russians who remain in their country face the fraud conspiracy charge. Court records did not list attorneys for any of the seven defendants, and it wasn't immediately clear if they have been arrested. An email seeking comment was sent to the African People's Socialist Party, which has previously denied working covertly for Russia or that any members committed a crime. Prosecutors said Ionov operated an entity called the Anti-Globalization Movement of Russia that was used to carry out its U.S. influence efforts overseen by the Russian intelligence service known as the FSB. They recruited U.S.-based organizations to help sway elections, make it appear there was strong support in the U.S. for Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and backing efforts such as the 2015 United Nations petition to decry the genocide of African people in the United States, according to the indictment. Among other things, the indictment charges that an unnamed candidate for local office in St. Petersburg received clandestine funding and political strategy from the group. Einhoff and another Russian said at one point that their Florida effort would extend to the 2020 presidential campaign, which they call the main topic of the year. The Uhuru Group did have a candidate who ran unsuccessfully for St. Petersburg City Council in 2019. Aretha Kanion, capital C-A-I-N-I-O-N, who was not charged in the indictment. She held a news conference in 2022 in which she defended Russia, saying world colonial powers have been collaborating against Russia for more than a century. Yeshitela, the indictment adds, traveled from Tampa to Moscow in 2015 to meet with Ionov and other Russians to communicate on future cooperation according to an Ionov email. What follows was covert Russian funding and support for various activities in the U.S. until summer 2022, including demonstrations at the California and Georgia state capitals and at an unnamed social media company in San Francisco. Much of the alleged cooperation involves support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In March 2022, 
Yeshitela held a news conference in which he said the African People's Socialist Party calls for unity with Russia in its defensive war in Ukraine against the world colonial powers. He also called for the independence of the Russian-occupied Donetsk region of eastern Ukraine. That was the article, U.S. Charges Four Americans, Three Russians in Election Discord Case. It was written by Kurt Anderson and appeared at the Associated Press's AP.com website on April 18, 2023. The final reading for the day is a book excerpt. This appeared in the Toronto Star newspaper and it's the star.com website. The title is Christina Sharp's new book, Ordinary Notes, explores beauty, art, and the complexity of life. This was published on April 6, 2023. In her new book, Ordinary Notes, Toronto writer and professor Christina Sharp assembles in a beautifully produced volume a series of notes and images that explore questions about loss and the shapes of Black life that emerge in the wake. What follows is a portion of Note 51, Beauty is a Method. I've been thinking about what beauty as a method might mean or do, what it might break open, rupture, make possible and impossible how we might carry beauty's knowledge with us and make new worlds. We lived in a town that used and hated and feared its black population. I grew up in Wayne, Pennsylvania, at a four-way intersection, rich white folks in three directions and a small black neighborhood in the other. One bright, sunny summer day when I was eight or nine or ten years old, police from at least two townships, but I think three, descended on and laid siege to my neighborhood. Multiple police cars blocked our streets because a white woman had reported that she saw a black man driving a station wagon through the center of Wayne with a shotgun visible in the back. The black man was named Cheeky Carter, and he was really a boy, 17 or 18 years old. He was a friend of my brother Stephen. The rifle was a rake, part of the set of tools that Cheeky used for the yard work he was doing that summer in order to earn money. We gathered in our front yards, on the sidewalks, and in the road. We ran after the police cars, and we witnessed and insisted loudly that Cheeky had done nothing wrong. That day, at least, although there was harm done, it was not immediately fatal harm. Knowing that every day that I left the house, many of the people whom I encountered did not think me precious and showed me so. My mother gave me space to be precious, as invulnerable, as in cherished. It is through her that I first learned that beauty is a practice, that beauty is a method, and that a vessel is also a person into whom some quality, such as grace, is infused. Dark Symphony, Negro Literature in America, was my mother's book. My brother Stephen gave it to her. There is an inscription in it, as there is in every book that we gave her. Happy birthday to Mommy. Love, Stephen. 3270. In the pages of the book is a list on a worn slip of paper. The top of the list is faded from the sun and disintegrating. The list is in my mother's fast cursive, the writing she used when she was making notes to and for herself. My mother's handwriting for the world was meticulous, as in, note to me in the first edition of Beloved that she gave me on my 23rd birthday. In rebellion against the nuns at West Catholic Girls who tried to control every aspect of her school life, My mother had created her own beautifully ornate script. This particular list is written in the back of a form that she recycled from her job in human resources at Sears Roebuck and Company 
a sheet of light blue paper that she tore into strips to use as bookmarks. A lifelong habit instilled in the child of the Depression. Use everything, waste nothing. The list? Before the Mayflower, $3.95. Malcolm X, The Man and His Time, $5.95. The Negro Handbook, $8.95. A Pictorial History of the Negro in America, $4.95. What Manner of Man, $4.95. This Child's Gonna Live, $4.95. Contemporary Art in Africa, $7.25. Black Political Power in America, $6.95. Black Power USA, $5.95. The White Problem, $6.95. Confrontation, Black and White, $6.95. To Be Young, Gifted, and Black, Lorraine Hansberry, $6.95. Black and White America, $5.95. The bookmark marks the beginning of the chapter Esther from Jean Toomer's Cain. I was a vessel for all my mother's ambitions for me, ambitions that found their own shapes. My mother made me a purple gingham dress with purple and lilac and blue applique tulips. She tried over many summers to teach me how to sew. Needlepoint, applique, cross stitch, slip stitch. She failed. We failed together. She had a beautiful old pedal-operated Singer sewing machine, and when you opened the shallow drawers that ran along the top, you found that they were filled with brightly colored and differently weighted needlepoint yarn. I used to love to look at them. I would arrange and disarrange them, stack her thimbles, disturb her order. When she was dying, my mother still made Christmas ornaments by hand. Unpacking after a move, it was a shock to re-encounter the red felt hearts with the straight pins holding them together. The black felt globe with its own arrangement of pins. The ordinary flat-headed pins. The round red and white and brown heads. My mother's love of symmetry. Even the bent pins have a place. It was a shock to encounter them again. The way that beauty shocks. But more. What is beauty made of? Attentiveness whenever possible to a kind of aesthetic that escape violence whenever possible, even if it is only the perfect arrangement of pins. I continue to think about beauty and its knowledges. I learn to see in my mother's house. I learn how not to see in my mother's house, how to limit my sight to the things that could be controlled. I learn to see in discrete angles, planes, plots. If the ceiling was falling down and you couldn't do anything about it, what you could do was grow and arrange peonies and tulips and zinnias, cut forsythia and mock orange to bring inside. My mother gifted me a love of beauty, a love of words. She gave me every black book that she could find, and in her practice, birthdays always included gifts for the body, gifts for the mind, and gifts for the soul. The mind and the soul came together in books, novels, poetry, short stories, history, art. One of these books was Tony K. Bambara's The Salt Eaters, in which Bambara, in the dedication, thanks her mother, who in 1948, having come upon me daydreaming in the middle of the kitchen floor, mopped around me. In that dedication, I saw something that my mother would do. I saw something that she had done. My mother gave me space to dream. For whole days at a time, she left me with and two words, 
curled up in a living room windowsill, uninterrupted in my reading and imagining other worlds. That window was my loophole of retreat, two feet deep, three feet wide, four feet high, my small, public, private place from which I began to imagine myself into another world. The house was an old farmhouse, built in 1804, and there were no right angles in it. Everything was on a slope. The windowsill I sat in looked out onto the backyard. In summer, that meant cherries, crabapple, green-gauge plum, four peony bushes, a huge weeping willow that had been struck by lightning, and beyond that, the road called Ratnor Street Road. There was also a vegetable garden where we grew tomatoes, corn, collard and mustard greens, turnips, kale, carrots, several varieties of lettuce, cucumbers, eggplant, zucchini, sweet and hot peppers, and more. In the winter, you could see the house behind the fruit trees where Chico and Joey live. Sometimes the house was cold, and then my mother's stacks of newspapers became fireplace logs. And though this was a sign that there was no money for oil, there was an art to making my mother's neat paper logs. Roll the paper, tuck one edge in, roll a little more, tuck the other edge. That way they wouldn't come undone. That way we wouldn't come undone. Beauty is a method. Reading in the windowsill, running after the police, a list on a slip of paper in a book, the arrangement of pens and cloth, the ability to make firewood out of newspaper. This attentiveness to a black aesthetic made me move me from the windowsill to the world. That was an excerpt from Ordinary Notes by Christina Sharp. It appeared in the Toronto Star newspaper at the star.com website on April 6th, 2023. That's all the time I have this week. If you would like to listen to this program again or past editions of the African American Hour, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts or at the Audio Reader website at reader.ku.edu. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour. Thank you.